try and make this clear from the very start of our sermon this morning. In these verses that we've just read in Malachi chapter 2, what's God doing? God is primarily addressing ministers of the word. We'd all agree, we all saw that. The chief recipients of this Old Testament prophecy that we're considering today, the chief recipients are those who preach and those who teach the word of God to the people of God. Now, as I say that to you straight off the bat at the start of the sermon, what's your first thought? The chief recipient of this portion of scripture and this prophecy is for those who minister the word of God. Your first thought maybe is, phew, <laughs> I, uh, I don't have to worry about it then. You know, you may be thinking, uh, I don't preach and I, I don't teach and I don't have to instruct the people of God. Uh, so, next 25 minutes, I can sit back, I can chill out and I can catch up on that sleep that I have missed out on in the last few nights. You thinking that this morning, are you? If so, it's absolutely not the case. See, yes, it is true that the primary recipients of this portion of scripture are preachers and teachers and ministers of the word. But I can say to you that there is application in Malachi chapter 2 for every single one of us who is gathered in this room. And what did Adrian say when he finished his reading? He said, this is God's living and inerrant words. This is God's words. This is where he addresses the community of faith. This is where he speaks to you, friend. And so I really can firmly say to you this morning, there is a message in Malachi chapter 2 for your life, for my life. And surely is a message that we should take care to hear most clearly. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to in this portion of scripture, though, is the catastrophe of the ministers of the word. It's the first thing that we see here, the catastrophe of the ministers of the word. Uh, I guess time for a little memory test, just to test your memory. We took a break, didn't we, uh, last week from the book of Malachi. So just need to test to see whether... You've got the background and you're familiar with the setting of this book. In fact, this maybe helps if you think of it in terms of three R's. The people of Israel here have recently returned to the land. Then they have, do you remember, rebuilt the temple and they've expected revival to break out. Now that's the kind of background. Now here, what we about 20 or 30, 40 years after they've rebuilt the temple, do you remember what we said? The people here are utterly kind of disillusioned with God and they are doubting God. The revitalization, the revival hasn't seemed to materialize around them and they're scratching their heads and they're they're just going through the motions with worship and, and they're asking, where is God? And if you've been here for the sermon series, do you remember what God has said to his people thus far in Malachi? Do you remember? Do you? To stir them. Like to, to point them back to himself. First of all, he's declared that he loves them. You remember that, don't you? He says to the people, I've loved you, I love you. And then what has he done? He's begun, in the previous section, to rebuke the people and to chastise them. So what's the background? What's the atmosphere in Malachi? It is, listen, it's apathy, apathy, 
apathy, apathy towards God. Now, isn't it interesting to see how this chapter begins? Like the previous section, what we saw was God address both the priests and all of the people. Well, here in front of us today, it's almost like most of the community of faith in Israel kind of scuttle off home and they just leave the spiritual leadership before Malachi because do you see how God begins this at the beginning? He says, Oh priests, he says, get this clear, oh priests, spiritual leadership, this command is for, this is for you. So that kind of backs up how we've begun the sermon. Who's God speaking to here? He's speaking primarily to the spiritual leadership. Fine. Okay. Now, I doubt that there is anyone in this room just now, if they have paid attention to the reading, I doubt there's anyone who failed to notice that God is angry in Malachi chapter 2. You noticed that, did you not? He is angry with the priests and the spiritual leadership. So as the community of faith, what do we ask of the text? We say, why is God angry? Don't we? Like, what is it that is angering almighty God in this text. Well, would you do this? Would you look to see part of it? Look to verse 8. Look right to, towards the end of the section. It's, I think it's where it becomes clearest in verse 8. You see? First, we've got this hint of kind of moral disobedience amongst the spiritual leadership. We're told the priests, what does it say? It says, they have turned aside from the way and it says they've corrupted the covenant of Levi. Friends, do you, do you see the idea? What do we have there? We've got spiritual leadership who are living, reveling in their sin. So you have the priests and the spiritual leadership and they're living in this unholy way, an, an, an open way where they're flourishing in their iniquity, loving their sin. And what do we think when we hear that? Ministers who are not are not living in the way they should. What do we think? We think this is a terrible thing, do we not? Terrible thing. God's appointed leaders living in sin, embracing sin. But you know, as awful as that is, that is not the crux of the matter at all. And I want to try and engage the boys and girls at this point. So boys and girls, you can just listen to your minister for a moment. I've got a little game for you. Okay? So I want the mums and dads are going to have to help the children here. So boys and girls, if you look at verse 6, in fact, all of us, let's all do this, okay? Let's all play it together. From verse 6 to the end, there is a word that God keeps on repeating. And you see if it, boys and girls, it's in verse 6, it's also in verse 7, it's also in verse 8, it's also in verse 9. It's quite a long word. I'll give you a clue, boys and girls, it's the very last word. Of the section. God keeps on speaking about instruction. Friends, do you see the problem? Do you see what it is that is angering God in Malachi chapter 2? The ministers amongst the people of God are not teaching properly the word of God. Why is it that God is furious in Malachi chapter 2. Why is he angry? He's angry because in the community of Israel there is a failure of the word. A failure in word ministry. In fact, we're told not only this, 
that by their false and erroneous teaching that the priests are leading people into sin. Look at verse 2. It's an incredible verse. God says that by their teaching, he says he's going to curse them. But then look at that, indeed. Look at the tense. Indeed, I have already cursed. Do you see what's going on? And friends, do you see the big picture? Think about it. The spiritual desert that they're in. And the people are crying out to God and saying, Why is there no revival? You don't love us. You're not faithful. Why is there no revival? And what's God saying there? He's saying there's no revival. Why? It is a direct result of incorrect teaching amongst the people. God is saying, it's not that I don't love you. It's not that I am not faithful to you. He's saying the problem here is false, inaccurate preaching amongst the priests. Now, I made you a promise at the start of this service. I said that there would be application for every single one of us. And it's true, there will be, but you're going to have to bear with me for a moment. Because at this point, I want to speak to those in here who do preach and teach and hold out God's words. And if you're part of this congregation, you know that that's something we are greatly blessed with. Like we have men who preach and teach in this congregation. Also, we're blessed with so many ministers and elders who come through the congregation. At Lily's baptism, what was that, two weeks ago? I just did a little head count when I was standing up the front here. And there were at least five ordained men in the congregation at that point. We're blessed in this regard as a congregation. But if that's you, if you are an elder, or if you are a minister, or if you are a young man who is sensing a call to ministry, then do you see what God is doing this morning? He is reminding you not just of the importance of that task of teaching. He is reminding you of the implications of the task of teaching the people of God, the word of God. The implications. Now, you see, very often what we do in a church, what do we do? We place emphasis on an individual's responsibility for their spiritual walk. Don't we do that a lot? Like we'll say there needs to be personal prayer. Don't we say that? We need There needs to be personal reading of Scripture. And without this individual personal prayer and reading, you're going to fall away and there's going to be problems. We say this. But what is the lesson here? Christian friends, the inaccurate teaching from the pulpit, inaccurate teaching, that it has a massive spiritual bearing on the whole of a congregation. An errant minister can lead a church into long-lasting, enduring, and awful sin. And if you do teach the people of God, if you are an elder, if you are a minister, surely you heed that lesson. The ministry of the word is a ministry where there is much at stake. The second thing, though, that we see here is not the catastrophe, but the consequences for the ministers of the word. The consequences for the ministers of the word. I know this is unlikely to happen, okay? But again, bear with me. If, on your way home from church, somebody stops you in the street and asks you, 
what the main point of Malachi chapter 2 is, and I know it's unlikely, but maybe it'll happen. We can, we can be hopeful and optimistic. If somebody stops you in the street and asks you what the main point of Malachi chapter 2 is, what would you say the main theme here? What's happening in Malachi chapter 2? Hopefully you would say this. Hopefully you'd say that in Malachi chapter 2, what God is doing is he is warning his priests. Isn't that right? He's not letting this erroneous teaching, this incorrect teaching just go. He's not turning a blind eye, is he? He's here saying that unless there is repentance, there is going to be judgment and there's going to be punishment upon these men. So if that is the main theme here, what's the question we're asking now? We're asking, well, what are the punishments? Like, what are the judgments that God is going to mete out on the spiritual leadership, right? Well, we have here what I want to call the triangle of terror. That's what I want. It sounds a bit like a Marvel movie or something like that. The baddies in a comic book or something. But the triangle of terror we have here, because we have three sides to God's judgment and punishment upon these priests. And I just want to point them to you, point them out to you. The first is in verse 9. See if you can see it. God promises humiliation. Do you see it? He's saying to these priests that because of their sinful teaching, these men are going to be, look at the words though, despised. They're going to be abased. Do you, do you understand and see it? Do you see how seriously God has taken this? He's saying, because of your incorrect teaching of my people, you're going to be hated. You're going to be hated and humiliated. Then, we also see exclusion. I was thinking about this this past week. I think as a little boy, I would have loved this portion of scripture. I was in my study and I was preparing my sermon and I was thinking about it and I could almost visualize my 10 year old self sitting in church, sniggering away at a poor minister who has to read uncomfortably some of the words here, certain, imagine myself, 10-year-old sniggering away as the minister has this dung. You know, not often you hear repeated in a portion of scripture, dung. Do you, do you though? Do you see what's being said? The dung refers there to the awful and the other parts of the animal that were so unclean that they had to be taken out of the camp to be burnt. Now it's disgusting in the eyes of God and it's disgusting in the eyes of the, the people. And what has to be done with the offal and the dung? Did you notice? Did you? It has to be taken out, it has to be smeared upon the faces of the priests. And that, now why does that have to be done? What, what do you think? What would you say? What does that have to, is it humiliating the priest that the dung smeared upon their face? Is that what we think? It's not that. That's at least not all of it. Do you see what would happen? It would render the priests themselves unclean. They would be made ceremonial unclean. A priest there is being rendered unfit by God to serve in the temple. Do you see what's happening? God is making the priests Unfit. He's sacking them. He's excluding them from their task. The ministers have been sacked from the ministry. Something that is underlined by the fact that the priests, as well as the awful, the priests are taken out 
of the camp. We're beginning to see how seriously God has taken this, are we not? And then we say a triangle, well the third side of the triangle is the condemnation that these men face. And I just want to read this to you. Please hear it. God says to these ministers of the word, I, because of your erroneous teaching, I will now send the curse upon you. And I reckon many of us would have had no idea what God was talking about had it not been for the first reading this morning. That was a difficult reading, was it not? When Adrian comes up and reads from Deuteronomy 28 and we scratch our heads and we wonder, do you see what God is saying in Malachi 2? That because the failures of word ministry, God is going to unleash all of those curses of the covenant breakers. He's going to unleash all of those curses upon these men. The God here is promising to pour out his wrath and anger and sin upon these priests and upon these men. Now let me, in light of that, bring this to your door. Let me ask you this. When you see the magnitude of these punishments and judgments, what is it that is your abiding thought just now? When you see the judgment of God upon the priests, what is your impression that you're left with? Is it not this? Do you not think, wow, God must truly care for the ministry of his word? When you see the condemnation and the humiliation and the exclusion of these priests, do you not stand back and think, wow, God is truly concerned for the proclamation and the preaching of his truth. Isn't that the impression that we're all left with? So allow me to make good on the promise earlier on and let me apply it to you. Friends, are you equally concerned for the ministry of the word in your church? You're seeing here how concerned God is with preaching and teaching. What about you? Are you concerned with the preaching and teaching in your congregation? We hear so much talk in the church about praying for preaching, don't we? Every two weeks uh, we have a prayer meeting through the back and every time we'll write at the bottom of the board, pray for the preaching of God's word. We hear a lot in the church about pray for the preparation, pray for the Lord's day and the preaching. And I simply want to ask you, Christian friend, whether you actually do that on a daily basis. Do you pray for the preaching and the teaching of your church? Or is it the case that we spend more time criticizing those who hold out God's words, more time criticizing them than interceding for them before God? Do we pray for the preaching? And then, do we pray for ourselves? I mean, do we pray on a daily basis that we will receive what God has to say to us through his word? That we will be given ears to hear? Do you do that? Do you pray on a daily basis that you will humbly hear on the Lord's day what the Almighty God is saying to you in His Word? We see here in these severe punishments the place that preaching has in the priorities of of God. Surely, if these things are important to God, they must also be important to you and me 
his people. And then thirdly, we see the criteria for the ministers of the word. The catastrophe, the consequences, and then the criteria. I think the reality is that nearly all of us in this congregation just now, at some time or other, will be involved in a ministerial vacancy. Isn't that right? Uh, quite a lot of you, I would imagine, have already been through a ministerial vacancy in your time as Christians. And um, the rest of us, no doubt, at some stage or other, uh, we will also be involved in a church without a minister and, a, 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 and going through a vacancy. Now, ask those who have been on vacancy committees in churches will tell us those things can be really fraught sometimes. Isn't that right? Have you been on a vacancy committee? Because everyone's got all manner of ideas about what a minister should be like. You'll have somebody put their hand up and they'll say, all right, the, the next minister has to be young. And then people will scratch them. Another person will put their hand up. No, that minister, he's, he's got to have kids. And he's got to have a PhD. Or the next minister, he's got to be brilliantly organized. And you see, the list goes on and people disagree about these things and so forth. In Malachi chapter 2, I wonder if you notice what God did. In Malachi chapter 2, God speaks about the covenant of Levi. And he puts before you the criteria... The priests, temple priests, had to really meet. And I think when we look at that, what we are shown by God this morning are at least some of the criteria that we should expect ministers of the word today in the 21st century in our churches to meet. And if you're a member of LCPC, what do you know? You know that we are looking for an assistant minister. This could not be any more relevant. What are the criteria that ministers should meet? Well, look at the first one in verse 5. God speaks of reverence. Have a look at verse 5 and see it. So he personifies. Do you see the idea? He personifies the priestly line. He personifies it and he says, He feared me. The, the, the ideal priest, he stood in awe of my name. So do you see, he's speaking of the minister's vertical relationship that ministers today should revere God, revere him, recognize, worship God, worship the majesty, magnificence of the Lord of hosts. We need to see that. But then look at the holiness that is demanded in verse 6. He says of this ideal priest in the priestly line, he walked with me in, what are the words? Peace and uprightness. And, and oh, if ever there was an important lesson for us to learn, it is that. When we are looking for a minister, what do we need to assess? Not just the giftedness, but the godliness of the man. If you are ever in that situation in a vacancy committee, can care less about the how the minister is called and care much more about his character. Yes, the vertical relationship has to be good. The horizontal relationship, though. Is this a man who is pursuing holiness, thirsting after righteousness? Don't you love the preposition in verse 6? Because look at it in verse 6. It's not the usual, the man walked before the Lord. Nor is it the other one, that the, the man walked in front of the Lord. What is the preposition? What must ministers of the word do? Do you see? They walk with 
the Lord. They must walk with the Lord. But then in light of our main theme, friends, is it that we must look for in ministers of the word? They must revere God. There must be holiness. But they must teach the people the word of God. Verse 6 says there must be true instruction. There must be no lies or falsehood as they teach the people. And I think this morning, that third one there, that is where the rubber hits the road for us in here. Because let's return to that common theme that we always talk about. Many of you are just going to go. Some of you today are are passing through. You're just visiting London City Presbyterian Church. Others of you, lots of you are going to finish your studies and go. Others of you, very soon probably, will get a job elsewhere. You're going to leave this congregation and go. What does that mean for you? That lots in this room just now, quite soon probably, are going to be assessing what church they go to next. And you're going to be assessing the ministry of that church. And also, the rest of us, someday, maybe we will be in a vacancy committee. And so, what do we need to see in a minister? Well, here's a quote for you. I read this this past week. The pastor's responsibility to teach his people. The pastor's responsibility to teach his people is the first and most important priority. The pastor's responsibility to teach the people his first and most important priority. Will you be in a situation where you're assessing a new ministry and a new minister? Understand that instructing the people of God from the word of God is the first and most important role of the ministers of God. Isn't that a glorious thing? What does God give us when we're looking for an assistant minister? He gives us a job profile. We've got to pay heed to this. And then, friends, I'm going to conclude and I'm going to end with this. We've seen the catastrophe. We've seen the consequences. We've seen the criteria. But we are also shown the curse-bearing minister of God in Malachi chapter 2. And as we end, I'm going to ask you to do something which you will think is crazy and strange, but you again will bear with your minister I'm going to ask you to put on a new pair of glasses, is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to put on a pair of Christ-centered lenses and to read verses 5 and 6 again. Now we've said God is speaking about the ideal priests in the temple, the criteria for them. I want you to read these verses with me, thinking of the Father's relationship with God the Son. Would you read verses 5 and 6? All of us in here, let's read them. Think of Christ. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. Surely you see the point I'm making. This is more than just criteria for temple priests. What is the Bible doing there? 
The Bible is pointing you, Christian friend, to your Savior, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And who is he and what has he done? What do we know? He entered before there was a world. He entered into a covenant with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the covenant of redemption. He has entered into this world and he lived in fear and awe and reverence of his Father's name, did he not? And he came amongst us and he did what you and I could never ever do. He lived in peace and uprightness. And what did he do? This true minister of the word amongst us, he taught people. Didn't he? God had one son, he made him a preacher. He taught and he held out the word of truth and life. But I am ending with this question. How did the Lord Jesus Christ do this? How did he turn people from iniquity? How did he turn us from our sin to God. What did Christ do? Or oh, will you listen to the scandal of the gospel? Will you hear the offense of the gospel? What do you see at Golgotha that the very God of very gods had done? Smeared upon his face for you. Don't you see that? That the Lord God himself, the Son of God, was made unclean. For you, that he too was led out of the camp, not with awful to burn, but with a wooden cross upon his back, that he has faced those curses we read of in Deuteronomy 28. He has faced the curse due to the covenant breakers. All why? Because he loves you. All to save you from those curses and to save you from hell. So yeah, Malachi chapter 2, there's a lot about ministers and there's a lot about preaching and teaching. But don't you dare look to a minister for your hope. Malachi 2 is saying, look to Jesus for life and peace and righteousness and that hope that you need. And if you have not done that this morning, Surely, if anything, in Malachi chapter 2 and in Deuteronomy 28, you recognize that this God is a God who will have justice. He will punish sin. He will judge the earth. And I say to you, friend, run to Jesus Christ. Run to the one who can protect you and can save you from hell. Friends, this morning, repent your sin. Come to Christ. Rejoice in the great high priest. Rejoice this morning in the incarnate word of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, there are uh, many of us in here who in home groups and in Sunday services and in other settings teach and preach and proclaim uh, the word of God, we have much to confess in our inadequacy and in our sin. But we are truly, Lord God, amazed at how uh, Malachi 2 speaks of Christ and shows us the great minister of the word And we thank you that sin is covered in Christ, that your wrath is turned away. We do thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is the incarnate word, and in him is found salvation evermore. 
We pray in his name. Amen.